Let's try to look at something that's a little bit deeper this evening. We've looked at some of the more practical aspects of the mitzvah of tshuva, of self-correction that is appropriate now and moving towards uh, Rosh Hashanah and Elul. Let's try to look at something a little bit deeper, perhaps a little bit more effort, perhaps a little bit more effort to connect to the practical for those who insist on having an immediate practical application Let's do a little bit of work ourselves to do that. But let's reach into a subject in the deeper realms and see if we can explore it and understand something new about, uh, about Elul, about Rosh Hashanah, about this time and the energies that are behind it. <coughs> let's ask a few questions and <coughs> see if we can use that to build a, an approach. <coughs> First of all, <coughs> you know that The month of Elul, this month itself, this month, has a special quality. Now, each time of year, each phase that we go through, <coughs> has a unique quality. <coughs> People often misunderstand this one, because they think, <coughs> they think that Elul <coughs> is a time of preparation for Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> in other words, what we do in this month is we prepare ourselves, because Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment and assessment of how you'll be, need to be dealt with during the next year, is going to be made on Rosh Hashanah, so you need to look your best, as it were, be prepared, enter that zone spiritually correct, and so it's a time of preparation. People often miss the, the, the idea that there is a special nature to Elul itself. It is deeply connected with moving towards Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> it is a time of preparation. But the month itself has its own identity. It has its own mazal. mazal. The mazal of this month is, is Basula, Virgo in English. It's a significant sign, the, the zodiac of this month. That has to be also understood. But the month itself has its own unique quality. You see it in a number of ways. One of the ways is that uh, you know that there's a custom. We blow the shofar this month. We blow the shofar throughout this month. There are different customs as to from exactly which day we blow the shofar. Different minhagi. One of the customs <coughs> is that we blow the shofar starting 40 days before Yom Kippur. Right? Because that there were 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu Moses went up the mountain came down again with the second tablets during those 40 days in order not to make the same mistake of idolatry that had happened before. The shofar was blown during those 40 days. So we said 40 days before. There's one custom. The custom used to be in Barcelona. They used to, they used to blow the shofar from the 25th of Elul. 25th of Elul. What's the reason for that? What's unique about the 25th of Elul? 25th of Elul. That is in a few days' time. 25th of Elul, the reason is <coughs> because the world was created there. The world was created in We celebrate Rosh Hashanah, <coughs> the first of, <coughs> first of Tishrei is the creation of the human being. But really it was the sixth day of creation. So the 25th of Elul, six days before, was when the world was actually, how can you be sleeping? How can you sleep that day? to be woken by the sound of the shofar. There was another custom. But one of the customs <coughs> was to blow the shofar in Elul, from the first day of Elul. Not 40 days before Yom Kippur, not because, but Elul itself requires blowing of the shofar. Why? If the shofar means to wake you up in Elul preparing for Rosh Hashanah, <coughs> that's preparation for Rosh Hashanah. But there's some reason, special reason, that the month itself has an identity. What is, the, what is the identity of this month? Furthermore, you see that 
let's take the let's take the question one step further. <coughs> you know that there are many clues to the month of Elul. There <coughs> are some beautiful remozim clues, hints, allusions to the month of Elul, and many of them are learnt classically learnt from the acronyms of certain. We take the first letters of certain words that spell the month of Elul. Each of them has a meaning, of course, <coughs> that the work there is to understand <coughs> why is the month of Elul <coughs> hinted at in this word. The most famous, perhaps, is Anila Doidi Vedoidi Li. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. The simple meaning is that you're moving towards a genre, time of closeness, when Hashem, as it were, makes himself closer to us. This is also the idea of the young bride moving towards her time of closeness in, in, in marriage. And therefore, I am to my beloved means I move towards him, as it were, he moves towards me. <coughs> That's Elul. Those four words, the first letter spell Elul. And there are others, Es Levav, Rav Es Levav, talking about the breast, the covenant that will be made between you, your hearts. Yet, there will be a circumcision of your heart and the hearts of your children. There's also many layers of meaning. But those letters, Es Levav, Es Levav, spells Elul. Obviously, easy first level is that it's a time of reconnecting marriage also covenant <coughs> and there are many of these hints that each give a different nuance a different angle of insight into Elul. One of them is very perplexing. Okay, Focus with me carefully, it needs to be understood. <coughs> and that is that the word Elul is also hinted at one of the deepest commentaries brings this the word Elul is also hinted at in a mitzvah in the Torah. Again, there are many clues. The source MS points out that Elul is Aleph Lamed and Vav Lamed. It's an Aleph Lamed and a Vav Lamed. Or Lamed Aleph, Lamed Vav. Those two words in Hebrew have an interesting interplay. Because Lamed Aleph and Lamed Vav are law and law. Two different kinds of the word law. Right? Loi and Loi. In Hebrew, depending on how you spell them, Lamed Aleph means not, is not. And Lamed Vav means to him. And there's an interesting interplay between these two words in Tehillim. Right? We say, V'loi anachnu. He made us. Hu asanu. He, Hashem, made us. V'loi anachnu. And not us. One meaning is, and we did not make ourselves. But there's a ksivan akree there. Which means that it's written one way and pronounced another way. Which always means an overlay of two meanings that resonate. So, you can't do this in English, of course. In English, you can simply, you have to be forced to translate it one way. In Hebrew, you say it one way and, pre- and <coughs> spell it another way. Which means, who us? He made us and not ourselves. In English, you'd probably say, he is our creator, and not we ourselves. Remind yourself that you did not make yourself. Yeah, there's a destruction of ego and focusing on the source. But in Hebrew, the word not ourselves can also be written as loy, which means, and we're to him. We belong to him. There are two, there are two meanings there. So, so Samus says, Elul is both of those. It's the resonance of both of those meanings. It means, it's the, it's the we did not create ourselves, and in as much as we realize that we're not our own creators, which means, to the, and he says this, to the extent that you negate your own ego, to the extent that you realize that you are not your creator, to that extent you become his. Those two, yeah, that resonance is set up in the word Elul. <coughs> but one of the clues that's very perplexing to understand <coughs> is this. In the mitzvah of what's called the Are Miklat, yeah, we'll have a little bit, it's a couple of minutes, it's a background here to get this clear. There's a mitzvah in the Torah of an Ira Miklat. Ira Miklat is a city of refuge. What's the purpose of a city of refuge? Is that if somebody kills accidentally, somebody kills someone else, I'm talking about where there's a, some degree of negligence, yes, some culpability. Not, of course, premeditated murder, didn't intend to kill the person, some accident occurred. <coughs> but the accident had an element 
of the person's responsibility. For example, he was climbing down a ladder, <coughs> and he slipped, or the ladder broke, and he fell on someone and killed him. Climbing down, not climbing up. <coughs> climbing up is too distant. He's moving away from the person. That accident is out of his control. But if he's coming towards the victim, yeah, something of his own, of a person is, is chopping, let's say, and the axe head flies off and kills somebody, of course he never intended to kill the person. But there was some degree of possible negligence or culpability. If, of course, he lifted the axe and it flew off backwards, <coughs> that's considered too distant, that's not his responsibility. There's a whole body of law in Torah governing this, this idea of what you call, I think in English you could probably call it manslaughter or, or homicide or, or you know, has a legal, probably a legal term. But the point is that there's a somewhat negligent or culpable act <coughs> from which someone dies. Now, if a person kills someone else with complete um, n- non-culpability, there's no way that he could have prevented that accident, then there's no, there's no legal consequence. Of course, there's a spiritual consequence. The person has to ask, why was I chosen to be the agent of that person's harm? It's a whole spiritual accounting that has to be made. There's no legal consequence. On the other hand, if someone kills somebody intentionally, then there's a murder... A murder <coughs> charge, and of course, theoretically, you could have a death sentence. But in the case of of negligence and culpability, where someone kills someone else (coughs) unintentionally, (coughs) but not totally removed from the (coughs) responsibility, there the Torah prescribes golos. Golos means that he has to go into exile, the person has to leave his place, and he he has to go to a city of refuge, one of the cities of refuge, (coughs) and there he's safe. In fact, the procedure was that he was brought to trial, if he was judged as being culpable, that means of being liable to have to have this sentence, then he was escorted by two sages to a city of refuge, protected. And when he got there, he had safe refuge. In a city of refuge, he was safe. Here are Miklat, he was safe. But if he ever stepped foot outside that city, he became fair game for anybody in the family of the dead person. There was an avenger from the family could kill him. In fact, the truth is, anybody could kill him. And some of our authorities rule that it's actually a mitzvah to kill the person. Not just that he's that he's not he has no there's no there's no protection of his life as it were, but his life is forfeit. But his life is forfeit only outside that city. If he remains in that city, then he cannot be touched. He has the special laws of how he exists in the city. If he has a Torah teacher, his teacher has to follow him there because he can't live without Torah. That's where he lives, <coughs> and he's never allowed out without taking on the responsibility for his life that he can be killed at any time with total impunity. How long does he have to stay in that city is another perplexing thing. Until the high priest dies, till the Kohen Godel dies. The Kohen Godel of that generation dies, then the sentence is over, you can come out. You know, not perplexing things. There were nine cities of refuge, actually six. There were three in Transjordan, <coughs> three in Israel, and there are three more that will be designated in the larger borders of, of, of Israel when, when that time comes. And there were also many other cities of refuge that were constituted by the cities of the Levim. The, the Levitic cities were also domains of protection for people like this. And all in all, there were yeah, m- m- many more than the nine. <laughs> now, now, when this mitzvah was promulgated, when Hashem commanded Moses, <coughs> when God told Moses, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, make for yourself cities of refuge. In fact, the original mitzvah that he was describing there was that the camp of the Levites, you know, the Jews traveled in formation in the desert, in concentric <coughs> circles, the, the Machane Levia, the camp where the Levim lived, would in the desert constitute an Iramiklat. That if anybody had killed anybody accidentally, he could go into that zone, he would be protected. The Torah gives a tremendous amount of attention to this mitzvah of Iramiklat, uh, and there are many perplexing aspects to it. For example, when the Mashiach comes, there's a whole parsha of how the Ira Miklat will look. That means where the cities will be and how they'll be designated and all sorts of details 
about the Arei Miklat when, and what's very peculiar about that is, the city of refuge is for people who kill. People who kill. You don't have a desperately tragic situation. Who needs that when the Mashiach comes? Who needs that? What's the meaning of these cities in the Messianic age? On the contrary, the Rambam says that these cities will be set aside in the Messianic age and the prerequisite will be that we'll be living at a level of, level of spiritual perfection where all Jews on earth will be living with spiritually perfect lives. Who's going to die then? You're talking about the resurrection of the dead. Who's going to die? What is the city of refuge doing then? There are a lot of perplexing things in this part. And it's not our main subject this evening. But what I want to quote is this. In this mitzvah of a city of refuge, there's a verse in which Moshe, God says to Moses like this, V'alokim that means, when Hashem brings it about and it comes to your hand, a person is in a situation, he perpetrates this act that someone dies, and Hashem, yeah, and I will give you a place, I will give you a place of refuge, those letters, what is the month of Elul doing, being hinted at, in a city of refuge for somebody who's killed? Again, let's put our heads in. It's not simple, not, not simple, uh, <coughs> not simple material. Think deeply here. <coughs> when you tell me I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me, and the word spells Elul, I understand. But you tell me that someone is going to kill somebody else and then be, as it were, yeah, anyone who kills him is exempt. That means his life is forfeit. And the city of refuge, he has a place of existence. And those words spell Elul. What, what is this month? What does this month have to do with killing people? And, and having a place to go where, 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 where a person is safe. What does that mean? Perhaps you can ask one further question. And that is, Rosh Hashanah itself has an interesting source in the Torah. Now the Gemara asks, how do we know? You know, it's well known, we all know, that the day of Rosh Hashanah is judgment. The day of judgment. How do we know that? Where's the source? Huh? I'm sure your minds are all racing through Chumash with your encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture. Where does the Torah hint? Where in the Torah... Is there a hint? In Chumash, in Torah itself, where is there a hint of the fact that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment? After all, it's the day of creation. Yeah, it's the day of creation. That's when the human being was created. But where is there a notion, where does the Torah tell us that every year in Rosh Hashanah we are judged again for life? Of course it's logical. Just as you came into existence at the first moment, the human being, there's a recreation, a reformation of life itself every year. But where does the verse say it? Well, I'll, I'm sure you all have it on the tips of your tongue. But, uh, the Gemara says like this, there's a verse that describes the land of Israel. Israel, the land of Israel. And it says that the land of Israel is an unusual place. Vishkisa, it says, That means that in Egypt, where you come from, the way that the land is there irrigated is with your feet, your legs. Always in, in deeper thinking it means the legs, the feet always mean non-consciousness. It always means that which is far away from spirituality, the legs. The Hebrew word for a leg is a regal. It's the same word in Hebrew that means habit. Because habit is that which you do without thinking. There are two kinds of human activity. There's human activity that comes from the head, which is intelligent and intentioned. And then there's the activity that comes from the feet. Right? Which is where there's no thought. It's the lowest part of... Co- and therefore, hergel in Hebrew means habit. So the land of Egypt is irrigated by the feet. That means it's a, you don't need spirituality there. But in Israel it says, Limtara Shamaim. That means in, in Israel to look up because it's rain. Not the Nile that wells up that the Egyptians worship, that floods its banks and irrigates a fertile land. In Israel you have to look up to the rain and you never know when that's going to come. The best predictions, the most accurate and amazing 
meteorological technology and science today is, is hopeless. When it comes, in case you hadn't noticed, right? When it comes to knowing what's going to be. The rain is a thing that comes from a completely... I mean, what more do you need? The word Geshem in Hebrew. You see, in English, you can't... You just can't, you just can't begin. The word Geshem in Hebrew doesn't only mean rain. It's, Geshem in Hebrew means the root of all that exists. Gashmi in Hebrew means all physicality. Gashmiut, anything that has physicality. The rain is the source of all that. The source we have says that the rain is one of three things that our God does directly Himself. Hashem Himself holds three keys. All other things in the world he does through agencies. Angelic emanations, agencies, intermediaries. There are three things that he does himself. No intermediaries. Opening the womb when a child is born. He himself does that. Opening the grave when the dead are resurrected. It's another version of the same thing. And bringing the rain. Bringing the rain. When the rain falls, that's not a, a natural event that is mediated by intermediaries. That's a direct action. And the rain you're talking about is a and Israel, you have to look up, Limtara Shamaim, you have to look up to the rain. Yeah. Why? Because the land of Israel, it says, Ki Hashem the eyes of Hashem are on the land of Israel, Mireshit Hashana Ad Achrit Shana. Hashem's eyes are on the land of Israel, Mireshit Shana from the beginning, Ad Reshit Hashana from the beginning of the year, Ad Achrit, Ad Achrit Shana till the end of the year. That means, his eyes are on the land, not like other countries, where there's a distance. The Gemara says, if you live in another country, it's like worshipping idols. If you don't live in Israel. Why? Because there, you have a direct relationship with him. Elsewhere, you have an indirect relationship. Who would choose an indirect relationship? Eh? Who's gonna, who, what version of marriage consists of a correspondence? You know, a distant correspondence. In two different countries, this is a marriage. Live in, it's not such a bad idea in some cases. It might, um, <laughs> some of them might be more successful than the, the other variety. But the point is that in, in, outside Israel, you're t- dealing with Hashem by correspondence. In Israel, is a direct, vibrant connection. And therefore, to the extent the power and the potency of that relationship is so different, that if you could live there, <coughs> there's other factors, obviously, <coughs> governing whether you should or should not, but if you could live there and choose not to, in fact, Allah says, if you do live there, strictly speaking, you're not supposed to leave. You know that? If you live in Israel, you're not supposed to leave. You need a very good reason to leave. Very good reason. If you live in Israel, you want to take a vacation. Vacation? Not so simple. Not so simple. To spurn the land and leave it. Eilat, incidentally. That's outside Israel. You know that. Eilat's outside the biblical border. It's way outside. So you live in Tel Aviv, you want to visit Eilat. It's not so simple. Not simple. Anyway, be that as it may. The point is that the land, the land has a uniqueness. And... The, uh, the, the fact that we learned that Rosh Hashanah is, they've just learned from this verse. Why? Because it says, The eyes of Hashem are on the land, the land of Israel, not Egypt, the land of Israel, from when? From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So the Gemara says, what is the beginning and end of the year? It means that what will be at the end of the year has been decided at the beginning of the year. And from this verse we learn that Rosh Hashanah is the time when the decisions are made of what your life will look like for the rest of the year. After all, it says, he looks at it, he does mean an act of awareness, of assessment, of interconnection, and from beginning of year to end of year. What, what is the verse telling you? It's telling you that he's deciding at the beginning of the year what the end of the year will look like. So we learn that Rosh Hashanah is the day. The question we have to ask is, that's all fine and well. What on earth is the learning is our source for Rosh Hashanah doing vested in a pasuk, in a verse, that talks about Israel. Israel's fine and well, wonderful, the place where you should live if possible, etc. What's got to do with Rosh Hashanah? Again, are you with me? Anybody? The Torah wants to tell you that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment, okay, with all its consequences. Which verse are you going to give me a hint? The Torah, 
Yeah, it's talking about an infinite document, a cosmic communication. Everything in it is significant. If God wants to tell you, if Hashem wants to tell you that in Rosh Hashanah you're being judged, where does He choose to tell you? In a verse telling you that Israel is a special land, that He watches the land. What is the land of Israel? What is the geographical sphere, the location yeah, that we call Israel? What does that have to do with Rosh Hashanah? On the contrary, one's a dimension in space and one's a dimension in time. What are these things doing together? Do we hear the question? Okay, let's try and think through this. First of all, let's try to address the city of refuge question. Let's, let's begin there. Hopefully it will open up, uh, open a path. <coughs> what does Elul have to do with the city of refuge? It's like this. When somebody kills someone, the consequence is godless, exile. The consequence for killing, the spiritual consequence of killing, is that you lose your place. Exile means you leave your place, you lose your place. The person's banished, exile. Where do you see this? First of all, first of all, what's the spiritual meaning of this? You know that all punishments, all spiritual consequences, right? In we are always understanding as midah connected midah. Midah connected midah. It's always exactly what you did is what you get. Right? Exactly. Why is exile the appropriate consequence for somebody you killed? Why is somebody killed somebody? If someone kills somebody deliberately and he gets killed, understand? Measure for measure. But at a certain degree of responsibility, a person kills somebody, the consequence is they have to wonder. They lose their place. Why? The meaning is something like this. What is the notion? What's the nature of killing somebody? You deprive them of their place. What happens when, you kill, when somebody's killed? The neshama doesn't die. The soul doesn't die. You can't affect their soul. You can't kill somebody's soul. <clears throat> the soul is alive, eternally. All you can do is take them out of their place. Killing takes them out of their base. You separate soul and body. The place that they occupy, the body that they inhabit, and the world that they walk in, you've deprived them of. You've taken them out. The consequence is you lose your place. When was the first murder perpetrated? <laughs> When Cain killed Hevel, when Cain killed Abel, uh, killed his brother, what was his punishment? You'll be a wanderer now, you lose your place. And it was such a desperate consequence that they said to God, he said, whoever finds me will kill me. Anybody who finds me will kill me. Hashem said, ah, you're absolutely right. He branded him with a mark and people should know. Eventually he was killed by someone. You see here, going back to the origin of this concept, yes, yeah, somebody's been killed, the consequence is... The one who does that, he loses his place. And he must wonder. There's no place to be. No place to be that he has life. If you want to take it to a deeper level, <coughs> it needs a little more thought. The precursor of the sin of Cain, when Cain killed Hevel, that only happened in the world because his father, Adam, had sinned. Adam originally sinned originally. He brought death to the world by sinning. The sin of Adam was really, again, he was an eternal being. Adam was created eternal, right? Adam Rishon was created with an endless life. And he lived in a garden. He lived in a place of endless life. In the center of the garden. In the center always means, in Torah thinking, it says, The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. In the midst, in English they translated, in the midst of the garden. It means it was in there. In Torah, means in the exact center. In the center always means, you have to understand the, the, the spiritual, the hints, the nuances. In the center means, gives life. It means through there flows everything. 
He lived in a garden that was, that was, that was li- lived by virtue of the fact that in its center, flowing out from its center, was a thing called the tree of life, and that is eternal life. Adam sinned and he brought death to the world. He brought death to the world. At first he brought death to the world. Instead of being eternal, he was going to live for a thousand years or 930 years. Eventually his lifespan became shorter and shorter. But he brought death to the world. He brought death to the entire world, to everything. We live now in a death zone. It isn't only that people live and then they die. Every moment dies. Let's understand this carefully. The sin of Adam, what did he do exactly? He ate from the fruit of the tree, whatever it means. Uh, many meanings. But what he did was, he, he caused a loss of the connection with the tree of life. He brought death to the world. The moment, the day that you eat from the fruit of that tree, the day you eat the fruit of that tree, most of the you'll certainly die. Certainly die. And therefore, the first killing, really, the first act of murder, if you like, and that it all goes back to was the sin of Adam. Because the consequence of his sin was, Hashem warned him, if you do this, you die. And of course, death is in the world. You, your children, forever. For all of history, at least. You bring death to the world. And therefore, the original sin was bringing. What was the consequence of bringing death to the world? Exile. Gods. You, lo- you leave the garden. You have to leave. You see again the same theme. He brings death to the world. The consequence is he's banished to a place that he's no longer in contact with the tree of life. He has to live in a, in a, in a zone that is full of suffering. And same consequence is the consequence of losing his place. He has the place that is the ultimate place, the place that is Hashem's place. In the center of the world where life is, he moves into a death zone. You know that when he sinned, he brought death to the world. Not, people are terribly mistaken. People think that life is life and then you die. But it's not like that. Life is a dying you know, the simplest demonstration of this is, Hashem said to him, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree, on that day you will die. But he didn't die that day. They ate the fruit of the tree, he died 930 years later. You see, the meaning, is, the meaning is not that, the meaning is that when you eat the fruit of that tree, death enters your life. Let's try and explain this a bit more carefully. You know that what happens is, we live in a world now that everything that happens dies. Even the good things, let, let alone the missed opportunities and the things where you got it wrong. But even the things you get right, even the things you get incredibly right, unbelievably right, the next second they're gone. The way we experience time is called dying. Every moment of your life. In fact, death pervades our experience so intensely that there really is almost no life at all. You know, our experience of life is, yeah, is our sense of the present. The present is nothing. The present is an is a infinitesimally thin interface between a past that is gone and a future that certainly isn't here. Where's your life? Where's your life? I don't mean to make you depressed. I mean, there's a powerful, there's a powerful message here, but even Ezra wrote a poem about this. He said, Ha'avar ayin. The past is not. Ha'asid adayin. The future is yet to be. Va'ahove keheref ayin. And the present is like the wink of an eye. Where's your life? The past is not. It's gone. That's for sure. The future, even more certainly, is not here. Where's the present? Where's all of your life now? It's a wisp of memory. It's a wisp of memory. And as you get older, it goes faster. Can I show you? All you have of your life is what you've extracted from those ephemeral moments, that's all. You made a meaningful contribution in a relationship someplace. That lives. That lives. But that thing is gone. But you know, when Adam was created, it wasn't like that. 
When he was created, time moved on and carried the past with. There was no past. There were no moments that died. Death doesn't only mean that the body lives a certain amount of time and then dies. Death means that all human experience passes from the living into the past, into the dead. <coughs> he was created in such a way. The way he... Yeah, so we, we, no way we can imagine this. But we can say the words. He was created in such a way. This will be in Tchersamesim. When the dead are revived, it doesn't mean they will get up again and reconnect the ankle bone to the knee bone and the knee bone to the thing and then carry on walking and go back to the party they left. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. The dead being resurrected doesn't mean that they'll get up and continue. How will they continue? That tomorrow, tomorrow, today will be forgotten. The dead being revived means all death will live again. Do you know what that experience is? It's an experience where time moves from one moment into the next such that the previous moment is the past, and it still lives as the present. Do you know what that means? That means you have an experience. Let's say you have an ecstatic experience, some incredible, amazing, ecstatic experience. And the next second you move into the next phase of your life, and you experience something even more explosive then, but the previous one is still as alive as it was. It's still happening. You see, time now goes like this. But in that world, time will go like this. You have an exponential fanning out and amplification. Can you imagine such a thing? The reason we experience time the way we do now is because every moment dies when the next one happens. So there can be no existence, only a memory now. And when the third thing happens, the second's a memory, and the past completely forgotten, not even a memory anymore, the first one. But in 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 a dimension where time isn't like that, then every moment is alive, the next moment amplifies the previous one together with it. Imagine such a thing. That's what it means he brought death to the world. He brought that now every experience is a... The sharpest pleasures in life are the fastest, you can't, the least able to be held on to. And the punishment for that was exile. Lost his place. Now, let's take the next step. A person has killed somebody, and the consequence is he loses his place. <coughs> he has no life. Wherever he is on earth, he can be killed. And Ira Miklat is a mysterious and miraculous creation. Ira Miklat is a place that a person can go into, and they cannot be killed. An Ira Miklat is a place for a person who has no place. Elul is a place for people who have no place. This month of Elul is learned for Ira Miklat. Because you who don't deserve to live, you've lived through a year where you've done damage. You've moved as far as possible from the source, or Shoshana as a whole year ago. You're moving into the death zone of an ending, yeah, where the year is about to die. There's no place left. No place left. This, yeah, the, you've, you've moved close to the death forces. Elul is a miraculous... Elul is a place for people who have no place. You move into the, into the month of Elul, you're living in an era miklat. You're living in a miraculous zone. You step out of there, your life is forfeit. There's a time of closeness this month, which is like... A, a, the feeling you should have in this month is a person who's forfeited life. You move far, so far from the source, so far from the resolutions you made on Rosh Hashanah, the spirituality you reached here. The purity you reached. You've now moved through a year that has got heavier and heavier and heavier. It's become darker. It's moved more. Hell is a place at the desperate last moment. You enter the borders and you're here in a place now that is a place for those who have no place. Know that why is it that the last month of the year raises this issue? Because when you move from the source, which is life, Rosh Hashanah, where life is given, Always when you move towards the end of something is where it loses its life. Very briefly explain this. You know that the, the, one of the sources for this, 
Amazing idea. It says that when you move into the real place, we're talking about place this evening, okay, what we call Makoim, the Bechina, the aspect of place. When the Jewish people reach the real place, Israel, they move from, from Egypt and they arrive in the land of Israel. How many years can you live in the land? How many years can you live there in a state of imperfection? So the Torah says, Ki soli bonim bonim. You live in the land, you'll have children and grandchildren, you will become old in the land, you will become old, then your life is forfeit. If you become old in Israel, Israel is the place of newness. Israel is the place where he is, where life is being manifest. Space is coming into existence, and time is coming into existence there. And in that land, in that place, you have to always be attached to the source. When you get old there, you lose your connection with life. If you would ever go the full extent, to the end of the... When no life is emanates, you would, that would be the end. How long is that? It happens to be the number of years that were given in Israel were 852. How do we know that? Because the word Venoshantem adds up to 852. So Hashem warned us, you go into the land of Israel, this is the time span. Yes, 410 of the one temple, 430 of the other. The additional years, 852 years, you, you add it up, comes to 852. You last that long in the land, yeah, having wound down to a spiritual inactivity, you die. So he did us a kindness and exiled us. We lost our place and went into exile after 850 years. Right? If you count it up historically, there were 850 years that we inhabited the land of Israel, we were exiled. Rashi said, Staka Hashem did an act of kindness with us, took us out and banished us. Because Golos is not only punishment, it's also a tikkun, it's also supposed to fix you. He took us out two years before. As an aside, not our subject at all, but I just mentioned briefly, why two years before? Why not one year before? After all, one year before, give us the maximum chance. Why two years before? Very briefly, I don't want to go into detail, but just share with you his fascination. This delves into the Kabbalistic world. I just mentioned briefly. You know, in Kabbalistic thinking, there's the science of gematria, where words are translated into numbers. The word means you become old. The number is 852. In gematria, there's a very interesting notion called the koilel. The koilel means that whenever you have a word in Hebrew, and you add up its number, you can always add one extra number. Do you know that? It's called the koilel. It's called adding the, the totality. Yeah, the, you can take a number, take a word, add up its numerical value, you have a number. That number is significant. <coughs> but you can always add one more. Why? There's not a time now to go into it. Very briefly, it's because any group of details always has one thing that's beyond the details. Music. Music is played by playing a certain number of notes, and then there's a thing called music. It's not the notes, it's what happens when you put them together. It's another thing. That's called the curve. It's a deep mystical significance. But you can always add one, and you have a legitimate total. <coughs> Had Hashem left us in the land for 851 years, since you can always add one, that would have been 852. The only way to save us was to take out two before. Some sources, uh, there's a book called the Leket Yosha, it brings a proof from here that the idea of a kolel in the gematria is derisive. That means you have here a beautiful proof that the Torah itself teaches you that adding one is a legitimate technique in gematria. That's why we had to be taken out two before. That needs more discussion. But, that's when we were taken out. Why? Because noshantem, you know the word noshantem in Hebrew, again, just an illustration of... The word noshantem is based on the Hebrew word yashan. Yashan in Hebrew has a number of meanings. One means old. Two, it means sleeping. 
three it means double, two. Four it means a year. Shana is a year. It has other meanings too. Teeth, for example. Teeth. <coughs> we'll discuss all of them. <coughs> some for homework. I'll leave some for homework. What's the connection to these ideas? Becoming old in the sense of winding down. Not old in terms of wisdom. The other Hebrew word for old is zaken. Zaken means zekana chokma. The person has acquired wisdom. But yashan means you're getting old in the sense of having fallen asleep. That's why old is the same word as sleeping. The year, incidentally, is an old thing. The word shana in Hebrew means it happens again. The word sheni in Hebrew, shen, sha, yeah, the root means to be doubled again. The year is that which happens again and again and again. That's why we don't take our time from the year. We take our time from the month. Jews don't live by the year. Because the year means old and again and again. We take our time from the word chodesh, which means mat, which means chidush, chadash, new. The, the, the new month yeah, is a symbol of newness. We take our time from the months. We have a lunar year, not a solar year. When you get to what's called repetition again and again, the, the word vishinantam, to teach in Hebrew, also means to say again and again, to teach by repetition. When you get old, then you get, in that sense, you get sleepy, you get far from the source, and then the spiritual life is ebbing, and then you're in the danger zone of the death forces. That's what it is. That, of course, is why we blow the show. Venoshante means to be old. It means to be sleeping. The Rabbam says, Uruyushenimishenaschem, wake you sleepers from your sleep. That's why we blow the show for an elf. It's not only to prepare you for Rosh Hashanah. Because Elv is the time of sleep. It's the time furthest from the source. And here you need to be awakened in this month of Elv. And therefore, why do you have to be taken out two years before? Because if you reach the full expanse, if you hit the wall, if you go all the way to the end, there's nothing left to go back. You know the word Teshuvah in Hebrew, I think I mentioned this before. The word Teshuvah, which means repentance, literally means return. The Maharal says that you notice this word is based, is built from a Hebrew letter that's second last in the alphabet and second. Shav in Hebrew. Yes, you have what's called At Bash. Aleph Taf, first and last. Bet Shin, second and second last. Gimel Resh, third and third. It's a Kabbalistic <coughs> technique also. It's those transpositions. But the second of them is Bet Shin. From the second to the second last. Shuva means to go from the second last to the second. Shav, to go back. Maharal asks the question, why is it not from the Taf to the Aleph? After all, let it be the most radical return from end to beginning. Why is it only second to the last, back to the second from the first, says Maral. Because a person who's gone to the end, disintegrated entirely, there's nothing left to go back. If you hit the wall, if you completely disintegrate, what's, who's left to go back? And furthermore, if you left nothing behind, what's there to go back to? There has to be some spark of something, some neshama left, some interest. Somewhere there has to be something that can be aroused. Therefore, the maximum power of Chub is to take you from the Shin to the Bet. What, you hit the Noshantem, that means death. Death means you're out of the zone. Completely out of the zone. Nothing left to go back. That's Elul. Elul, before you reach the end. There's this zone which is a time out of time, a place for those who have no place. What does place mean? Let's go a little bit further. What is a place? What is place? You know, the concept of place, and this is where we find that Rosh Hashanah is learned from Israel, which is the place of the world. You know, when the Torah refers to Israel, it calls it the place. He reached the place. Which is that? The center of the world, Yerushalayim, the base of Mekdash. It's called the place. It's called the place. Place means... See, in English, we have the words, a place means a place. 
space. The Hebrew word makom actually means much more than that. Makom means, in its literal meaning, limited meaning, it means a place to be. Its deeper meaning is a possibility of existence. The Hebrew word makom is closely related to mekayem. Kiyum means existence. Existence very closely related. The makom, the place, is the mekayem. That's how yukuma sheba, that means the place that gives you existence. You know that, philosophically speaking, a place is necessary for an object to exist. An object cannot exist unless it has a place to be. If there's no, if there's no place there, the thing couldn't possibly be. In English, you'd probably say space. You have to occupy an object. A physical object has to occupy space. If there isn't the space, it cannot be. In more philosophical terms, before a thing can exist, must be the possibility of its existence that supports it. Now, these all have names in the Kabbalistic jargon. But the word makom is indicating space or place in the larger sense. You know that the word makom adds up to 186 in Gematria. Yes, correct? Right? Work it out, 186. It's the same value as the divine name, Yudke Vavke, when you multiply each letter by itself. You take Hashem's name, the ineffable name that we never mentioned, that's beyond the world, <coughs> that gives existence to the world, Yudke Vavke. Multiply the Yud times Yud, He times He, Vav times Vav, He times He, Multiply each letter by itself, comes down to 86. What's the connection? When you multiply a word by its elements, when each element is multiplied by itself, the, the meaning of that in the deeper sources, deeper wisdom, is that you are looking at what the thing does when it expresses itself in every possible way. Whenever we do that, whenever we take an element and multiply it by itself, it means we are examining what it looks like when it expresses itself fully. Because after all, each element has all of those modes of expression. The basic number of the world is seven. But when we go from Pesach to Shurus, in building the world, we count 49. Now, because each of the seven is something in the world, the world is made of seven, each thing in the world also has seven. So each of those, each of the seven, has seven. That's the basic structure. Of course, each of those has seven too. But once you've said the first level has the second, you've said it all. The name itself, a name is a, is a description of essence. Hashem's name is a description of essence. What is that essence... <coughs> as it were, look like, if you could speak that way, when it expresses itself fully in all its dimensions, it's the place of the world. He is the place of the world. The Gemara says, that Hashem is Mekoyme Shalaylam, Ve'ein Oilama Mekoyme. Hashem is the place of the world, not that the world is His place. He doesn't exist in the world. The world exists in Him. Space, the universe, the universe, the endless universe, exists within Him. You know that one of the names of God is Hamakoy. Do you know that? One of the divine names, we call him the place. Hashem, we call the place. Baruch HaMokim Baruch The Jewish people are beginning, we celebrate that beginning in Pesach. How do we say it? Baruch HaMokim, blessed is the place. Because that's where we are. At the inception of the Jewish people, we are held within his place. When else do we say that? One of the times we use that name, we don't use it often. One of the times we use that name is when somebody learned and has died. And you are going to comfort the people left behind. The expression uses May Hashem comfort you. But the word you use for Hashem is May the place comfort you. May the place. What's the comfort in, in that? The concept is this. When someone's died, what has happened? They've moved their place. They've lost their place. There's some other place. And if what you say to the person is the real place of the world, the larger place yeah, within which you and that person still exist, they moved to a different room. They've gone to another department, another division. They're not reachable from here. They've gone far. They've gone <coughs> far. Very far. But despite that, you and that person who's no longer in the world, 
you still occupy a larger sense of place. That's a tremendous comfort. Yeah, one day you'll undertake that journey. They'll undertake the journey. You'll, under, you'll see him again. Yet not separated in the Shami. You're separated only in place. There's a larger sense of place that holds both. What has Israel got to do with this? Very briefly, I don't want to keep you late. Why do we learn this from Israel? Because Rosh Hashanah is the beginning in time. That's when time comes into existence. Israel is a place where place comes into existence. Place there has a source. You know, there are only three dimensions to the world. Time, space, and the human, human soul. <coughs> what we call Ashan. Ashan, that's the, that's the key word. Smoke. Ein Shinanun. Oilam Shana Nefesh. The world, which by which we mean space. Shana, by which we mean time. And Nefesh, the human being, the human soul. That's not space or time. That says it all, doesn't it? What is there be- be- besides space, time, and the human, the spiritual dimension? All of those have a point of origin. Time, Rosh Hashanah, where time itself begins. Land, earth, space, in the center of a place called Israel. And in those centers of place, or centers of time, the rules of time, the rules of space don't apply. When a thing is coming into formation, the rules haven't yet been formed. And therefore you transcend in Israel, the land, the world, has a certain reality. When you move into Israel, the reality becomes a transcendent one. It's called Eretz Tzvi, the land of the deer. Why is Israel called the land of the deer? Because when a deer is skinned, its skin looks like it couldn't possibly have covered the animal. So Israel is such a small place. There's plenty of room for everybody. There's never a problem. You don't have to ever worry about the borders not holding the old Jewish people. It's called Eretz Tzvi. It's flexible. The borders move, in case you hadn't. <laughs> when you move into the inner circle called Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, <coughs> there you have a deeper sense of space. <coughs> there the Mishnah says that nobody ever said they couldn't find a place of lodging in Yerushalayim. Place is not a problem there. Some of the sources say it's just like a mother's home when the children come home. It doesn't matter how many children. Mother's home is always big enough. When you move into the Beis HaMikdash, the temple, inside Yerushalayim, there you have a completely miraculous dimension of space. In the courtyard, right, the space was so intensely spiritual that it's expanded. It says, Eindim Sufim, they used to stand crushed together. But when they all bowed down and lay down, there's plenty of place around everybody. Yeah, it means, people stood shoulder to shoulder in Nazareth. There was no place to move. The crowd. As soon as the time came to bow, now you know you occupy much more floor space much more floor in most of us. I mean, some people don't make much difference to their proportions, whichever orientation they <laughs> happen to place themselves. But, uh, you know, most people occupy less floor area when they're standing than when they're lying down on the floor. In that zone of transcendent space, people could stand crushed, and yet when they lay down, suddenly there was enough space for everybody. I mean, there's a spiritual message in that too, of course. Standing always means assertion of ego. That's what standing means. When you stand as me, then you get thinness, uh, friction, and crushing everybody else. When you bow, which means an annulling of ego, then there's plenty of room. Then no one else gets in your way. When there's no ego to be asserted, then there's plenty of room. But that's how it was. And when you move into the Kurdish Kadosh in the Holy of Holies, their place disappeared entirely. Their things had no measure. Yeah, there the Gemara says that the Orin, the Ark, was placed inside the room, and if you measured from wall to wall, it turned out to be the same measurement as if you measured from the wall to the Ark. It had no space, no dimension. It occupied no space. That means the large fitted into the small. <coughs> and don't for a moment think it meant that the ark shrank or that the room expanded. That's impossible, because if the room expanded, it would be possible, invalid. It had to have definite measurements. 
And the ark also had to have certain measurements. It could not have shrank. It was its dimensions, the space was its, and there was not a co- complete contradiction between them. Because here you're talking about the center of space, where space comes into existence. That does not obey the rules of space. Space here is being formed. Rosh Hashanah is the day when time is being formed. And in Rosh Hashanah, you move beyond time. Do you know that's the reason why we do not do tshuva in Rosh Hashanah? You know that? You don't do tshuva. You want to correct yourself? You want to look good on the Day of Judgment? You work from now until then. You didn't get it right? You work in the next eight days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. But in the day itself when judgment's being passed, not a word about yourself. <coughs> hey, judgment's being passed. You're standing in the dock, right? They're about to pass sentence. Isn't that the time to... There's one moment for a, you know, expression of pleading of tshuva. Nothing. Not a word. Not Rosh Hashanah. Dangerous. Ultimately dangerous. And not a word about yourself. We don't even request anything. Not alone tshuva. You know that? Nothing. No requests. Very much later, after the prayers, after the tefillahs were composed, they inserted the lines of give us life, etc. Those are late additions, and they're not essential. If you leave them out, you don't have to go back. That's the only thing we mentioned. And it's completely non-essential. Here you're being judged, and you have an opportunity to make an impassioned appeal, and fix yourself up and look good. Not a word. And the reason is because Rosh Hashanah is deeper even than Tshuva. Tshuva is miraculous enough. Shiva takes you back to your point of origin and pa- changes your past debits into credits. Do you know that a miracle that is? You do Shiva. The mitzvah of Shiva is also going back to a root of place, a root of the human neshama. The, root, the world is formed in Rosh Hashanah. Space is formed in, in Israel. So the human neshama is reformed in Shiva. You go back to your point of origin where the rules don't apply. The rules don't apply. You do Shiva, you go back in time, you eradicate your past, no more accountability. Not only that, if you do Shiva properly, the things you did wrong in the past that were sins now become merits. Completely miraculous dimension. Rosh Hashanah is deeper even than that. Rosh Hashanah, you go back into a time zone that's before you yourself become formed. Shiva means you go back to recreate the purity of self. You go back to your point of your own birth. Rosh Hashanah is you go back before your birth. Back to the place you came from. The Gemara says, Rebbe Lazar ben Dodai, I'll give you an example. It's a long time to explain, but one, there was a man called Rebbe Lazar ben Dodai. He had a problem, he had a sin that was a very highly expressed sin. He had a problem, as it happens, it's probably involved women. <coughs> problem, involved women. He had no other problems because he had no time for anything else. That's what he did. And he had experienced all the illicit, yeah, that was his expression. And ultimately, he found, he heard of a woman someplace, one woman that he had never <coughs> visited, and she lived across seven, she required a bag of gold, and, but he did it, he traveled, he crossed the seven oceans, wherever it was, and he finally, he was with her. And something happened at the moment that he was with her, something embarrassing, that's not the point now, and at that moment she said to him, you are so far gone that you couldn't even do tshuva, she said. If you even tried to correct yourself, Hashem wouldn't accept it. She had a moment of insight into this man's negativity, into where he had reached, the depravity that he'd reached, his total obsessive involvement with this area. That was who he was, not a person who did those things, he was those things. She said to him, there's no hope for you. And he suddenly realized where he'd reached. And he realized that he reached a place that he couldn't even correct. So there the Gemara says he ran to the sun and he asked the sun to intercede and the sun said it his own problems. He ran to the mountains and asked the mountains to double for him. The mountains said we've got our own issues. And finally he said, Ein hadavot toloi elabi, depends only on me. And he went up on a mountaintop and he put his head between his knees and he cried with such an intensity that his soul left. And the Gemara says he's 
brought immediately to a place in the next world. When Rebbe mentioned this, he used to call him Rebbe Elazabendai. Rabbi Elazar. He used to call him. It means he taught. He taught something. He was a rabbi. He taught. What did he teach? He taught tshuva in hopelessness. He taught that a person has gone beyond the possibility of tshuva. Of course, it cost his life. It cost his life. Maral says a very interesting thing. What does it mean that he went up? It says he went up on a mountaintop. But it also says he, he crouched over and he put his head between his knees. Who on earth is interested in how he sat? What the, the position of the body? It says the moral interesting thing. The head between the knees is the fetal position. He went back to his point of origin here. You know, the moral says the fetus is folded over. The baby in the mother's womb, is there between his knees, his elbows on his heels. It describes the situation. When he's born, he unfolds. The expression there in the Gemara is like a pincus. A pincus is like a a pincus is like a small notebook <coughs> that's folded closed. In in those days, the term pincus meant like a small ledger. A shopkeeper would have a little notebook and he would keep his accounts in the pincus. A child, the Maral says, beautiful thing. A child is like a closed ledger. Is like when a child is unborn, he's closed. When his life begins, he's unfolded and the accounts start to be written. The book is opened and that's the accounts start to be to be kept. But the, the conception is that he's closed, his upper half is folded onto his lower, it's a Kabbalistic meaning as well, and as he's born it unfolds, it opens up. This man went back into that situation, put himself back into his, he went back before his birth. It cost his life. It cost his life. He had already, he used his, he had already utilized all that could be called life. And he was no longer of this place, he had to go to another place. Chuba takes you back, and Rosh Hashanah takes you back before that. That's why there's no mention of self. There's only mention Rosh Hashanah of the source itself. You only talk about him. That's what it is. What should be the feeling in Elul? Let's finish with this. What should be the experience of Elul? You go through this month, you're reaching Rosh Hashanah. It's not just that you're preparing. What should be the experience of the month? This should be a feeling. Yeah, you walk through this month, people who take it seriously should feel as if they have no place. You should feel, you know, you should feel this month like you're standing on an earthquake. You're standing precariously on ground that is shifting. You're traveling at 35,000 feet across the Atlantic and the plane is shaking very badly. Very badly. At moments like that, the ground beneath your feet is in doubt. It's a different experience of life then. How solid is this? How solid is this? It's an illusion. Do you think you're a solid place here? Imagine you're standing on something that's not solid at all. It's not at all solid. Yellow, you have no place to be. There's no place that you can tread that is firm. And there's a zone carved out of that kind of reality that is a temporary existence where, yeah, where they can't kill you. That's what you should feel. You should feel like things are shaking very, very... And you're living in this zone that is the last chance, as it were. Why does a person have to live in the era until the Kohen Godel dies? high priest dies. Well, who is the high priest? Isn't he the individual who goes on your kippah into the place that is the source of place? Do you see the connection? The Kohen Godel is the one person who can go into that place and, and, and experience, as it were, make a change there. And the person who is corresponding to his soul is a person in Ramiklat who doesn't have a place. You know? That's how he's connected to this point of origin in space. That's the month of El, and therefore... That's the feeling. The feeling is Li, I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. It's a time when there's a reawakening, that special closeness that's felt in the moment of of the waning of, of connection, that is a reawakening of connection, that's what it is. And therefore it's the miraculous place to stand that's deeper as it were, yet the work is the work of Chiva that takes you back to that 
to the source of yourself, even when everything around you is collapsing, as it were, but there's pull, you pull yourself into an inner center. That is a genuine sense, gives a genuine sense of existence through this month. That is what built. And you move into Rosh Hashanah, which is an experience of moving into the root of place and time. Yeah.